The Legendarium podcast is sponsored by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Follow along with our current series or enjoy some of the classics by visiting thelegendariumpodcast.com where you can sign up for your free trial membership. Click the sponsor link on our website for a free audiobook. Welcome to The Legendarium. Today I'm dragging Ryan back into Middle-earth for a discussion about the tale of Baron and Luthien. Todd joins us in studio, and I'll also cut from time to time to a chat I had with a friend of the podcast, Nick Jeter, on the subject. Finally, finally, welcome back to the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, I am Craig Hanks, as you well know by now, unless you're listening for the first time, in which case you do not know by now, but I am Craig Hanks. Uh, and I've got two of our fabulous uh, panelists. Actually, one of them is my co-host. He's half man, half another man, and thus totally crazy. It's Ryan Bruckman. There was a very weird transplant. <laughs> and his back is shaped, taking him from Big Bad Wolf to one of the three little pigs with the sweep of a razor. It's Todd Wenty. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin, <laughs> which is gone. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so... Welcome back, you guys. Now, uh, this is a little bit different installment uh, than what the three of us are used to doing. Uh, we're talking about the Legendarium. This is the second episode in our Legendarium series, uh, and it will be different in a few ways. Our Legendarium series? All right. Uh, what did I say? Legendarium? I meant Silmarillion. Silmarillion. Silmarillion, folks. We're here talking about the Silmarillion. We're not going to talk about ourselves. I knew that. Actually, we probably we should will. at yeah, some we point. We will. Uh, but so we're doing a, a thing, something a little different because I did have a conversation a couple weeks ago with Nick Jeter, who, if you are a longtime listener and you uh, have gone back and, and listened to our Lord of the Rings series, he was on episode 15 of the Lord of the Rings series uh, and was a fantastic guest. So I wanted to bring him on and get his, uh, his views, but scheduling didn't permit all of us to be in the same room at the same time. So I will be cutting in and out into a conversation with Nick. Uh, and I'll try to get that to make a little bit of sense You're as we do so. You're a secret ending? Wow. <laughs> so, what a nice through guy. Through the magic of technology, we'll have a combined conversation from two separate time places in the universe. Okay. You're weird. That was a weird way to say that. Thank you, Groot. Uh, so. We Oh, gosh. Groot. Did you really have to do that, Todd? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, so we are, uh, this is our second episode in the Silmarillion series. We are talking about uh, the Lay of Lathian, or the Tale of Beren and Luthien. Uh, from, this is chapter 19 in the Silmarillion, in the Silmar- Silmarillion proper, um, the Quinta Silmarillion. Uh, and so there's, I, I say chapter 19, and that should make it very apparent. There's a lot that comes before this. The reason that we're doing it this way today is because of something we brought up on our first Silmarillion episode, uh, which was that we wondered aloud if someone could jump in to a story like this that we felt was was fairly standalone uh, and, and understand what was going on. Could that person enjoy themselves? Could they get the story? And so what we have here is we have Todd, who's never read any of the Silmarillion as far as I know. That's correct. Uh, but, you know. Until now. Right. Uh, and so you jumped in here, chapter 19. Ryan, of course, was in the first Silmarillion episode. So you had read Ainu Lindale and Valaquenta and the first little bit of the Quinta Silmarillion. Of yeah. course, I did not fake that at all in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you are at least somewhat kind of familiar with the, the mythos behind correct. this world. But, yeah, you, they're... 
there were 15 chapters in between all that that you didn't read. So, and it showed. <laughs> so, and then you've got me, of course, I've read this, I don't know how many freaking times. Uh, so we're going to attempt to have a conversation and ultimately it might not be too enlightening as far as uh, things you'd never heard about the Silmarillion before. I don't know about that. But mm-hmm. what I what we're really trying to do here is answer the question, can someone really jump in? Can you recommend this? to somebody who has never read The Silmarillion. With me today is Nick Jeter. Say hello, Nick. Hi. Right off the bat, the first question is, as you were reading this, um, I, I said, just read one chapter and, you know, let's see if you can comprehend it and even enjoy it. How did it go? Oh, it was good. Really, really enjoyed it in terms of being comprehensible. Less so. <laughs> well, I... I mean, I have a fairly familiar background with Lord of the Rings, and so I was able to sort of place it. The geography is a little different because mm-hmm. it does not take place in the parts of Middle Earth that Lord of the Rings deals with. Right. Um, and the Lord of the Rings Risk board game map <laughs> didn't include the North, and so I was kind of lost. Um by the way, if anybody is very familiar with the geography of the Lord of the Rings, but has never read the Silmarillion, if you look to the west of the Shire, there are the Blue Mountains. Right. And the Blue Mountains are actually the easternmost border of the land that we work with in the Silmarillion. And at the end of the book, the the whole land is going to be sunk, basically, right. uh, into the ocean. And so, anyway, kind of wild. Yeah, it's completely different. Because I mean, let let me give you an example here of why you might not uh, might not just want somebody to jump right in. So I'm going to jump into this is the tale of Baron and Luthien. Um, okay, uh, it is. By, t- by it, the way, for those of us who are at home reading our own copies, please recognize that Craig is reading this from the third copy that he has. <laughs> the other two are sitting safely behind glass because they're far too precious to be touched by human hands. That's technically true. Uh, okay, so, give me a second, Todd. I need a paragraph's time. It is told in the Lay of Lathian that Baron passed through Doriath unhindered and ca- came at length to the region of the Twilight Mears and the Fens of Sirion, and leaving Thingol's land, he climbed the hills above the falls of Sirion, where the river plunged underground with great noise. Thence he looked westward, and through the mist and rains that lay upon those hills he saw Talath Dirnen, the guarded plain, stretching between Sirion and Narog. Then beyond he descried afar the highlands of Taur and Farath that rose above Nargothrond. And being destitute without hope or counsel, he turned his feet thither. And it, Craig did not just have a stroke. He really was reading a, an entire paragraph. So my point here, of course, uh, is a great one because those, those are the only kinds I ever make. Uh, but the point is, if if you're not if you're not into this stuff, there's a good chance you're going to read a paragraph like that and just go, "Are you kidding me? I have no idea what you just said." Yeah, Tolkien just had a stroke, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's kind of the danger. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I'll go back to another paragraph um, that I that I really liked, or you know, what, maybe I, I won't read an entire paragraph on this one. Um, Let's see. This is when Baron first meets Luthien. Mm. Uh, She vanished from his sight, and he became dumb as one that is bound under a spell. And he strayed long in the woods, wild and wary as a beast, seeking for her. In his heart he called her Tenuviel, that signifies Nightingale, daughter of Twilight, in in the gray elven tongue, for he knew no other name for her. And he saw her afar as leaves in the winds of autumn, and in winter as a star upon a hill. 
but a chain was upon his limbs. Anyway, it's it's, it's so beautiful. It's really nice, right? It's some <laughs> really nice stuff. Uh, the other line that I loved was what she starts singing. It's it's winter time, and and she starts singing. The song of Luthien released the bonds of winter, and the frozen waters spoke, and flowers sprang from the cold earth where her feet had passed. You know, so yeah, you get this bizarre stuff that, you know, names upon names upon names, three names for each, uh, you know, trunk of every tree, I think Ryan and I were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you can really get lost in that stuff. But on the other hand, there's some absolute gems mm-hmm. of prose in here. So... And now that I've talked for, what, 10 minutes straight or so? Uh, t- in kind of a gushing tone. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. He gets that way with the he, Silmarillion. He gushes a little bit. Just a little. Yeah. Well, silence you. Uh, <laughs> Todd, what did you think? You're fresh to the Silmarillion. This is your first time ever having read anything out of it. What did you think? Were you able to enjoy it? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, there... I, and I, I guess, remember when you started reading it, because, of course, we have our little Facebook chat. You, yeah. s- you had started reading it, and you said, oh, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I bet he isn't to the to the stuff with all the crazy names. And, you um, know, there are a few points that I f- thought might trip you up. Yeah, there were some. And, and, and I guess for me, the, the biggest thing about it is that as I as I was reading it, I was, I'm very aware of the Silmarillion is the uh, is is the background mythos that sets in place in, in in into motion all of the pieces of the lord of the rings um and so i expected it to be very much a mythical kind of a feel and so as i'm reading through it i find myself um, drawing comparisons with uh the story of orpheus and eurydice mm-hmm. um i started thinking about um some of the other greek myths that i had uh, that I had read uh, Hercules and his journeys to the and his journeys to and re- requirements to fulfill certain tasks. I mean, there there feels very much like um, in writing this, <laughs> Tolkien was working very hard to uh, replicate uh, that kind of a feel and yet do it for a new world. Um, as human beings, we have a we have a tremendous desire to to figure out where we fit and to connect ourselves to things that are much bigger than we are and to feel connected to the larger uh, the, the larger issues of life and death and this was a you know this was if in that vein this this myth works very well the the way that he the way that Tolkien approaches things he approaches things the same way in Lord of the Rings he approaches it the same way in the Hobbit you get you get the elvish name you get the name of man you get the other name which is the older name which is the name <laughs> right. before the elves and men walked the earth and you know, and so I was I I kind of knew that was coming and when it when it arrived I was like yep here he is Tolkien in his finest trying to convince us that yes he did really create all of this in his head first I get it. Um, and yet, I don't think it detracted so much from me enjoying it that I would say to, that I would say, yeah, it wasn't worth my time. Right. I really enjoyed it. Well, I think that ties into what you were just saying about how he's trying to mimic some of the mythical modes, and there are it's something that kind of escapes us a little bit as Americans because we're such a new culture and a oh, new yeah. country. But if you go to, you know, if you go to Scandinavia or Germany or China or whatever, there are stories that have been passed down forever, it seems like, and so much so that they're just part of your consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think what he's doing is, yeah, he's learned these names, these events so well, even though he made them up. I mean, you've got to have a certain mastery of what you made up. He's done that so well that he is able to kind of mimic that old, 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 always been there feeling of the story, right? And so the idea here is, Ryan, you've read the first bit of it, uh, but you shouldn't have to, or or at least that's what Tolkien's thinking is. When he mentions the horns of Orome, you don't, you shouldn't have had to go back and read that. Everybody knows what the horns of Orome are, right? Well, no, but that's the mode he's going for, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, that concept, but it does not translate it to a modern audience or to someone who doesn't have that built inside of, uh, who, you know, as an American, where we don't have that built into it. We have a few things in our short history that are built into every American, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, Coming up on the 4th of July, it's good to talk about the yeah. fact that we do have some of those. I mean, we think back to you know the stories of the Revolutionary War and everything that you know. From a kid, you were taught those. Eventually, those are the sort of stories that may carry on, whether they're true or not. Um, in this sense, it's really hard for someone who hasn't, who doesn't have that sense of a historical lineage in story mm-hmm. um, to really feel that. It feels like, oh, crap, this is something else I didn't know I need to go find so that I understand <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah. And that may be more of a byproduct of the age in which we live in and reading this and our culture than necessarily his writing style or anything. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if the observation of it being more of uh, an outgrowth of our culture, um, that that we feel we have to have all the answers. We have to know everything. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. I think there's a lot of there's there's a lot to be said for hearing things and hearing them repeated frequently to the point where then then you recognize them when they are repeated later on. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, it, this this piece feels very oral. It feels like he's working very hard to um, put into writing something that he envisioned as an oral tradition. Um, and he talks about, in fact, I think in the very beginning of it, he talked about the fact that this was going to be um, a story that had been passed on in song, but he was going to tell the story without all of the music. Um, and, and I was, I, being a musician, I loved that. Um, and, and you can feel the, the, the rhythm of the spoken language that is involved in all of this. That's one of the things that I think, and, and maybe one of the things that helps, that, that could help, and Part of the reason that maybe I didn't have so much uh, difficulty approaching it is because certain certain pieces of uh, Judeo-Christian literature in the Bible feel very much like this, that they are, um, they are repetitive, they were given as an oral tradition, they've been handed down through that oral tradition, and so you become used to the way that things sound when they are written from an oral tradition. That's something that we actually, in our first discussion when we were talking about the I knew Lindale. Nice. Thank you. Air high five. Um, we were talking about that. That we talked about it being similar to the Bible and some of the aspects it was that it was there. But one of the things we also brought up was the fact that it was that it did have this feeling of something that should be told over a, a fire. Yes. Something that should be told like that. And it's good to see that consistency. Nineteen chapters into the story, you know, especially a, a story as long as this. That, that consistency of that oral tradition as you talked about still being there. So you ready for me to drop some knowledge on you? Um, this was actually, he, he began writing this story in, I believe, 1917, uh, revisited, revisited it during the 20s, uh, long before he ever wrote The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. 
Uh, and it was originally written as a poem. This was a hmm. uh, a poem of 17 cantos. Uh, it was it, It's insanely long. It's yes. incredibly long. It's all in uh, rhyming verse, rhyming couplets. Uh, and he he ended up only writing 14 of those 17 before he died. Uh, but those 14 are published in um, uh, Volume 3, The Lays of Beleriand. Uh, if you go pick up your History of Middle-Earth, uh, it is published in there. And so you can read that. And, and so I, I think that that's not an accident, what you guys are talking about. This was written as poetry first. And so I'm sure that that was very much on his mind, whether consciously or, or subconsciously, as he's writing the prose version of it. You know, and I, and I wonder, too, um, it, it felt the, the thing that kept coming to me as I was reading through this was um, I remember reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, yeah. Um, man. That was a crazy story. Yeah, one, a, a wonderful, wonderful piece. And I and I remember the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and I and I read that when I was probably seventeen, and that's what it kept feeling like. This this story feels very much like it is setting up the warrior mythos uh, for for a people who will follow in much the same way that the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu set up the the loyalty mythos between um, between warriors who fight for each other. Um, and and as soon as I as soon as I thought about that, of course, for me, I immediately thought of the Star Trek episode, uh, where uh, they where Captain Picard came in contact with a race of people who spoke only in metaphor, and you had to understand their that you had to understand the things that they ta- that they spoke to, uh, the the myths that they had in order to understand their people. Um, it was because, of course, when at, at one point in the episode, Captain I, Picard, I totally get symbolism. Scare, he he shares the story of Gilgamesh. Um, it was a it was one of the I I think one of the one of the most enjoyable episodes of the entire run of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, but it 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 made me think. You know what we as a people are informed we are we are products of the myths that are used to shape our understanding and our const our, our our concept of of what is right and wrong of what is desirable and undesirable and this is very much a story of what kind of love what love should mean what loyalty should mean what it should mean to take on uh, an oath. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts some, of this. Some really, um, some really wonderful mythical underpinnings that that exist in this. It was beautiful. I, from that standpoint, and again, as I if I if I remind myself, oh yes, Tolkien is going to do certain literature uh, literary things because of his style. And when those would pop up, I would say, just hang with it and keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Mm-hmm. Then like, I really enjoyed it. Like naming three tree trunks or naming <laughs> the three parts of a tree trunk. <laughs> um, when, uh, if, if I get my wish after this, based on what you just said, Todd, I would want you and, and anybody else listening to this who's just read the story of Baron and Luthien to go back. If you liked the, the oath aspect of this, everybody's swearing oaths and keeping oaths and breaking oaths and whatnot. If you go back and read from the beginning, the uh, the oath of the seven sons of Feanor is intense, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's it's that oath that drives 
everything that happens in the book. The the reclaiming of the Silmarils. Oaths become uh, in in our and and I don't know that I don't know that our American culture necessarily has as strong a feeling about what uh, about the binding nature of an oath. Nope. Um, that's why contract law is so prevalent. It, well, I, 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 w- I would agree with that. I think that's also one of the reasons why we don't understand a lo- an awful lot of what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, but heaven forbid we ever get into politics on this little podcast, huh? Um, but, but, I th- but I think that the, um, this does a wonderful job of, of laying out the, the dangers and the inevitability of certain things, uh, certain outcomes that happen every time an oath is taken. I think it's very interesting. There are multiple times in the writings here where as soon as someone makes a decision based on their oath, the phrase and the doom that befell whatever, you know, was added on them. There's multiple times where it it immediately says that as soon as they make the decision, they sealed their doom. They sealed their doom or whatever. Because they kept to their oath. And I thought that's an interesting concept that there is no way out of a promise that you said, that you created. These people, as soon as they've agreed to do this, they have their their path is set their destination a fixed point an interesting it's just an interesting thought process uh, thought thing to go through yeah. yeah yeah i don't know how quite to respond to that um speaking of the pits of hell um when they describe what baron is up against in getting the silmaril morgoth is sitting on his throne he's surrounded by all these werewolves and other things beasts and, balrogs. and numerous balrogs right i was like okay gandalf killing one merited super whiteness and a lot more power <laughs> super whiteness <laughs> I, I don't mean i don't uh, mean that racially i know <laughs> like, but it but that sure sounded funny okay well super powerfulness <laughs> right. um, he becomes gandalf the white he exalts a little bit in terms of rank they don't or tolkien does not mention a i guess you could say a parallel purification on the part of Baron and Luthien by defeating many of them. Do you see, do you see what I'm trying to say? So it, you mean like Gan- a, Gandalf a kills one. Battle. It's like this Gandalf kills one and that becomes a trial that elevates him. Is it the killing of the Balrog or is it the sacrificing of himself? I, I would know. say, I would say it's the sacrifice. And so anyway, th- there is a, a point at which, Luthien is given the choice right. uh, to, you know, choose the mortal life or the, the elven um, immortality. And the reason that she merits that choice, possibly, I'd right. say probably, is because of the deep sacrifices that these two have she made for made each great. other. Right. Anyway, something like that. I don't know. Well, there you go. Uh, but let me uh, shift just a little bit based on what we've been talking about or what Todd mentioned a moment ago that uh, this is this is a myth to look back on. It's supposed to inform an entire culture. Uh, did you guys realize if you if you read the Lord of the Rings closely enough, do you remember that the sto- the story of Aragorn and Arwen is a mirror image or is yes. very closely related to the story of Baron and Luthien? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into that, but I do think it's it's very interesting the layers of Tolkien where he wants the reader, to be, you know, to to be aware that there's this whole crazy backstory, but he's got to come up with that backstory. But it's really not for the readers to look back on. It's for his characters and his masterpiece of a novel to look back on and give them some depth. That's, you know, kind of the whole point of this this thing. Anyway, it's crazy, the layers that he gives us. When As, as I was reading through this, I said to my, and I'm, and I'm reading through it, I thought, you know, if I had been, if I had been Aragorn, 
and had known the story from birth and became aware that Arwen was willing, uh, there would be tremendous layers of angst and of self-doubt. Um, some really interesting things, some really interesting things that come as a result of that. And also the idea that uh, this is something we brought up on the Lord of the Rings podcast series uh, a long time ago. Uh, can you imagine sitting in the uh, in the house of Elrond telling the tale of of uh, uh, oh shoot the star Erendil the, mm-hmm. the, the star uh, and he's like oh yeah that was my dad that uh, you know that got a Silmaril and went back to the blessed land and was placed in the sky as a star yeah that was my dad you know that would be really trippy so <laughs> Along the same lines, Aragorn is able to look back and say, oh my gosh, that guy Baron, he's my great, 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 you know, 60 times great grandpa. Or, okay, it's... Like Maybe not 60, 43 but... or something like yeah. that. Anyway, uh, and and he is the, like, great-grandfather of Arwen as well. Like, they're both descended from this couple. Um, it lends another little bit of gravitas to the story when you know keeping it in the family <laughs> pretty much i think what i think we decided arwen was like his 37th great aunt or something like that or his first cousin 37 times removed something like that sounds about right seems it seems like at that, my own at, grandpa. That point, at that point it's probably okay um that joke is funnier in utah and alabama for some reason i'm not I, sure I, why whatever yeah. uh so okay other notes that you guys have well go ahead Okay. Yeah. What first of all, Ryan, I'm sick of hearing from Todd. First of all, we haven't really summed up the story yet, um, which is fine. Well, th- can I tell you why? Good luck. Yeah. But I want to. I want to tell you that my first impression upon reading this, we've talked about oaths, we've talked about a lot of things there. My first impression on this is, this is the first love story that I came across in Tolkien in this in the Silmarillion lore. You know, that being said, I mean, we had. I've had like two chapters before that, really. Right. But this was the first fleshed out love story. Um, and it's a basis upon which a lot of s- love stories after have followed, and some before as well. It's a fairly common concept. Man sees girl, falls in love with girl. Girl sees guy, falls in love with guy. Guy goes to father-in-law, future father-in-law says, I want to marry. He says, you got to go do something impossible for me. Um, and I hope you die in the process. <laughs> Sucker. And then he goes and... <laughs> In the end, hearts change, they get together, people die. Pretty standard Shakespeare, right? Pretty much. Uh, but I really, you know, Ken's not here to really enjoy the the love story part of this, but I know he would just absolutely fawn <laughs> over the love section of this here. But it's really well written, and it really showcases in very brief moments how deep and how great someone can, how great love can be when it's found, and the lengths at which you're willing to go once you've found it. Yeah. It's a very simple concept, but it's told well in this story. I'm seeing a whole new side of you. Oh. Yeah, you should see me when I watch like 27 dresses and stuff like that. I No, that's not true. I should not. The looks oh. on both of your faces are worth every moment of that. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. I, uh, I, should, I should rephrase that. When I come home and my wife is watching things and I sit down on the couch and... There we go. There we go. Yeah, okay. We'll go I feel that. better. I feel better. Um, I've often told my wife, who's a uh, feminist of the First Order... That uh, that's an official title, by the way. I was wondering what that medallion was on the front yeah. door. Uh, 
I've often said, you know, if you read nothing else, and you've read nothing else of Tolkien, you should read the story of Baron and Luthien. Uh, because it's it it mirrors in many ways a lot of the old tales, but one of the things that it does differently is it's not about a helpless maiden, even though, it, you know, a helpless maiden waiting for the prince to come back and sweep her off her feet, even though there are moments when people try to make it that way. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically of when Thingol puts her in the in tree, the tower. Yeah. Uh, a la Rapunzel, and she, and she just says, no, nah, heck with that. And she gets herself out and weaves herself a magic cloak out of her sweet hair and, you know, goes and busts Baron out of prison. And, you know, it's... So it's almost like it, he was, with a very small p, very progressive uh, in mm-hmm. in what he did with his I female know how much characters. that word hurt to I use. Know. It's really... It's, it's, no, I think you're, you're entirely right, though, because there's one thing that, while I love a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, there's almost a, a, a heavier shift to make female characters really, really strong and do it almost too much <coughs> to a certain point now. And it's... It's praised because it's, you know, equality, you know, equality and everything. And I'm a fan of what they're doing there, but I miss the balance of love that exists in this story here because neither one is really able to accomplish what they're able to do without, without the, other. the other. Yeah. And it's not that she's waiting for him to save her and it's not that he has to be saved by her or, or that he's incomplete without her. Anything. But the fact is she, she does a number of things in the story to take care of herself and to help get you know, get him to his uh, his goal, and he in turn does what he's supposed to do to try and, you know, win her hand and and to complete his, you know, his quest. And I think that that has slowly diminished and disappeared out of a lot of storytelling currently, that it's got to be either the really strong woman or the really strong man, and the balance of, of being in love and what you're willing to do has been lost. I think that's not just in storytelling. I think that's in our modern culture. And I think that if there is... If because everyone needs to be a strong, independent person. And and um, there's been some, you know, there in, in the in the social sciences, there's there's a there are two factions. There's a faction that says that everyone must be a strong and independent person. There's a faction that says that we must recognize that we are stronger when we become interdependent upon each other. And, and, and that's interesting. And I think this story fleshes that out beautifully. I, there's one thing that I don't know if I caught it correctly um but one of the things that was always interesting to me was um in in the lord of the rings was the idea that sauron existed as this not quite substantial being and in the lord of the rings in the lord of the rings and so when we read here um this story he's there as a as a corporeal physical being, but if I'm remembering correctly and and interpreting it correctly, Luthien has a dramatic impact on the rest of Sauron's existence as she sings the song that forces him to abandon his form. Am I? Uh, I don't. Uh, yes and no. I mean, it it probably affected him psychically. But it's he did reclaim physical yeah, form yeah. Uh, going forward. But I, I I remember reading that and I said to myself, hmm. The story when he loses his physical body, you have got to read. I'm looking forward to it. Now you're going to point me in directions. Um, I was very – two things that I, that I really enjoyed. One of them was that they talked so much about the power of song. 
Um, I am, I, I mentioned earlier as a musician, I love that. I love, I love the fact that they speak of that. Um, which was which was really fun to talk this, about all this again this is on. something we brought up in the first uh, Silmarillion episode he, Tolkien's not a musician no he that was not a part of his wheelhouse and yet he, he seemed to have it. a really really deep appreciation for it well there's a it, in in all ancient cultures um, these stories these oral traditions that are handed down have to be handed down in song um, because you can only you can only say it um, in a in a monotone voice for so long, it has to be put to music because that's how human beings encode a lot of this material in long rent in in long term memory. Mm. Um, and the other thing about, at least as far as I concern, I am concerned. I'm telling you, I can sing Jake and the Neverland Pirates, the Octonauts themes. I got those things stored so deep because of those songs. Now that's right. That's right. And and this and and but I but I wanted to share what I think my favorite line in the entire process was please do um <coughs> since since you read so many beautiful pieces um it is and i don't know what page it's on because i have an electronic version um uh but it is it is after um Beren and luthien uh are are together i think for the third time that they finally get together um but before their final time and she's uh, and luthien says um you must choose, Baron, between these two, to relinquish your quest and your oath and seek a life of wandering upon the face of earth, or to hold to your word and challenge the power of darkness upon its throne. But on either road I shall go with you, and our doom shall be alike. I just loved that. I thought it was really, really cool. So did you feel like she was pushing him one way or the other in that? Um, read, it, read it again, that part where she says, you know, choose one or the other. Uh, yeah, you must uh, you must choose to relinquish your quest and your oath and seek a life of wandering upon the face of the earth or to hold to your word and challenge the power of darkness upon its throne. You know, I don't know. Um, I think that they were at a point where she was I, – I think she – I think she knew that he would have to tra- challenge darkness upon its throne, yeah. but that it had to be his choice. And and there's a this is probably the one thing that that makes this so much different from some of the Greek tragedies and some of the some of the Greek myths is that this is all about the renewed choice. It's not just the first choice; it's the renewed choice. Every, Baron has opportunities all along the way to abandon everything, and no one would say anything about it. He's had enough crap go on in his life before he gets to this point. No one would give him any guff about it. But he renews the choice over yeah. and over again. It's um, whether whether it's uh, in your professional life or if maybe it's family life or spiritual life. A question that I've always hated was, you know, why why did you start doing that? And I say that question is irrelevant. Irrelevant. The or not entirely. Or not entirely, but mostly irrelevant. The real question is why do I keep doing it? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess I could name any number of things, but that's not necessarily a path I want us to go down right now. That, uh, and I think we should say for Ken's sake, there was a lot of punch and intimated on this, but not enough described. What? Oh, are you really switching gears here? Oh yeah, I'm really oh, okay. switching gears. Wow. Yeah, I was thrown off. My brain is not in the punching at this point. Sorry, I just had to throw that out for Ken because he's not here, and I'm sure he would be saying just not enough punching, and that the wolf or the hound 
Who I'm the hound? Yeah. Oh, man, I want a dog like that. <laughs> who talks to you three times and then dies? Who is willing to do so much to yeah. make sure that things go well. And I I love it when a little little characters are brought into these stories in the Silmarillion that are from the Blessed Realm. You know, this was no ordinary hound. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know why. I've always just loved that. Uh, anyway... Um, Last now, I I think I'm good actually. I was going to talk about the Ring of Barahir, but uh, I think Nick and I talked about that. So here's an interesting one. If you read this story by itself, there there are a lot of things that are maybe unexplained. For, you know, backstory oh, from tons. backstory from the rest of the Silmarillion that you've missed. But there are things that will explain what you already know. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, in the Lord of the Rings. Aragorn wears a ring. Right. It's not a ring of power. You know, it's not one of those turn you invisible rings. Uh, It's just an heirloom. But that heirloom is the ring of Barahir. Yes. And you get to learn about that here. They make a big deal of it in this story. I thought that was really cool. I'd I'd kind of forgotten about it a little bit. I knew the ring was around. But, but yeah, it is passed down from Barahir, who was given the ring by an elven king, Finrod Felagund, who we meet in this. Um, who passes it down to his son, Baron, who passes it down. Wait, blah, so blah, blah, Finron blah. is... My bad. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all uh, good. No, it, it was actually driving me nuts, and I didn't want to look at the Wikipedia too much because I'm supposed to be reading this kind of blind. Um, Finron is an elf. Yes. And he gives it to Barahir as a gift. Right. And that's how it becomes a part of... Of that family. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right. So anyway, um, yeah, this ring has been passed down since the time of, of Barahir. And so Nick and I, before we started the podcast, did a little bit of math. It has been approximately 6,600 years no, give or since, take. yeah, 6,600 years, give or take, since the time that, that Barahir was given the ring by, by Finrod until Aragorn goes on the uh, the quest for you know, the destruction of the ring. Crazy, so, it's right? A, it's a long time to not lose grandma's jewelry. <laughs> I guess when you're, yeah, when you have that lineage, maybe it's a little different. Can you imagine being the one kid who, like, misplaces it? Any other points you w- guys want to bring up? So let me tell you a little bit about when I started reading this the second time through. Cause oh, I, yeah. So I read it through once, and I turned around and went, huh, okay. And so today... Um, I'm going back over it again. We're in the car heading up to my grandparents' place, and I'm reading it out loud, practicing my narration skills. Um, Yeah, this is not the best piece to do that on. I'm practicing out loud, and I'm reading it out loud to my wife, and she's telling me afterwards as we go through, and I I said, so tell me what you heard. Tell me, you know, she's like, like, tell me what the story, what's going on. And she was like, the, the response I got was kind of like a game of telephone where the brown pig turns into, you know, we the people, you know, just... What? Did you, ever, you just have a stroke? <laughs> purple monkey dishwasher? No, have you ever played a game? I uh, know it was brown pig purple monkey dishwasher. You know what I'm talking about? The game, the telephone game where you yeah, say sure. something in there and it goes around and it comes it out. Totally yeah. yeah. So the story that she told me afterwards, it was it resembled the story that I had, that I had been reading up to that point, but it, it hadn't. It, it wasn't. And so I realized here just how much value there is, and we're cycling back a bit here, just how much value there was in knowing about Barry here and knowing, uh, knowing that. Because there's that little tiny story at the beginning yeah. about mm-hmm. his father that 
if you it took the second time for me going through going, wait a minute, this first thing that I'm reading is the father of Bear in this whole story that I'm reading later. This is how he gets the ring. This is how, oh, got it. it and clicked. this is why it's important. And this is why it's like the first, like those short little segments at the beginning of all of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings things where they, he goes back and shows you something else is going on. There's just this little flashback moment before you get into the story of Baron and Luthien, although it's not total flashback, um, that really... Prologue. Yeah, prologue that... It threw me the first time. I'm like, why did I need to know that story? Mm. And when I came back and read it the second time, it clicked. And so I'm going to put a little emphasis and value with it. You know what? Some of these might be worth revisiting if they don't click the first time well. Go back and revisit it just for a little bit. If it's still not clicking after a while, you're probably probably not going to get it. Right. But this is one that the second time through, some of those connections made a lot more sense. And I didn't get caught up in trying to be like, well, do I need to remember this name? Okay, Barry here. This is my main character. Okay, no, he's dead now. Who's my main character? Baron. Okay. I didn't have to worry about yeah. that so much the second time through because I was able to just, I was able to go, okay, I know what I'm about to go into. Why does this story at the beginning matter? Right. And everything else afterwards made sense. And this is this is a kind of a microcosm of my experience with the Silmarillion as a whole. I know I've told this story already, so I'll tell it very quickly. But when I read it at the age of, 17 i want to say i it took me three months it was a slog and i got to the end of it i had no idea what i had just read but i knew it was awesome and then i went back to page one i mean it was the end and i went back to page one and started reading again and then then it started to make sense then yeah like you said it wasn't such an effort to remember the names It, it was more of a refresher and it really allowed me to dig into the story uh, so yeah, I agree with you. If somebody's reading it, that's that's this is why I continue. Important. We, we, we talked about at the beginning the idea of taking the Silmarillion story by story, not necessarily in chronological page one to you know cover to cover. You know, yes, you should probably do that. But when you read a single story, it I think it's worthwhile to go back and to revisit it in that short segment, that short bit that you've chewed out there, mm-hmm. to really be able to pull out what what the story has to offer because i said the second time as i was pushing through it things just cl- it, i'm like i don't need to worry about remembering the tree trunks name i don't need to worry about remembering these things i i know who barry here is now i know what's going to happen and i was able to get a little more in depth into the story itself like you said when you read it the second time yeah and if uh, so if you are reading this uh and you give it a second shot uh which we're obviously recommending and you're still not into it don't worry about it it's this isn't move on to another story exactly or or another book you know it this is the Silmarillion just by virtue of how it's written and what is written in it is going to be life-changing for very few people like Mm -hmm. myself uh it's going to be very enjoyable for a few more people Mm -hmm. and for the vast majority of people who pick it up it's going to be completely confusing it's going to be too old too biblical to whatever fill in the blank and they're not going to enjoy it and i've come to be okay with that uh there was a, a critic right after the lord of the rings was published who said something like you know people who read this obviously just have a an appetite a lifelong appetite for juvenile trash and i am definitely one of those people <laughs> if that's the case you know you just some people have a taste for this sort of thing really speaks to them i'm one of those people and if you're not that's okay 
course, you're probably not listening to this podcast, but my point might be then, you know, don't feel like if you recommend this to your friends and your family and they come back and say, uh, yeah, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I, I read the, the Baron and Luthien story. I didn't get it and I don't really care to. That's okay. Let it go. Let me, you loved it and that's enough. Let yeah. me make it a, a slight twist on that recommendation. Tell your friend the story of Baron and Luthien. Mm, that's a good tell one. them the story. Again, good luck. Yeah. It's it's not going to be easy, but tell them the story and then say, I didn't, I'm not going to do it justice. Here's where you can read it and just, re, you know, and realize that that may still, you may still get a, I had no idea what was going on because it's not everyone's cup of tea because this is a book that requires active reading. You cannot passively read this book. No, you can't. You, you have to be, games. you have to be engaged. You so, have to be engaged. Yeah. So just, or married. <laughs> yes that to was the material awesome. to the material yeah. yes yeah, the, there the, we go. the sigh and the groan <laughs> from it just derailed everything <sighs> so anyway i'm gonna cough my last <coughs> while you're coughing I'll, I'll give my last piece um i understand better the um the the loyalty aspect um in the lord of the rings and the hobbit better as a result of reading this story. What do you mean, the loyalty aspect? What do you mean by that? Um, I understand the intense loyalty that Sam has to Frodo. I understand better the intense loyalty that uh, Arwen has to Aragorn. I understand the intense loyalty that is expected from the stewards of Gondor. Um, that may or may not be delivered and why it is so painful when it is not delivered. And I understand, I understand the, the, the piece of loyalty that, uh, Tolkien was, was weaving throughout the Lord of the Rings and why that was such a critical aspect better as a result of reading this piece, because I think that he has used this piece and I'm sure there are other pieces in the, in the Silmarillion as I'm going to read some of the other ones because I am now I am, um, but as I as I read those, I get a feeling for why he has put such a premium on loyalty and why that weaves so well and so thickly throughout the rest of the the stories that he wrote. Myths tell. Uh, I read a, when I was teaching a philosophy class a couple of years back. Um, we had a reading that we that was by a, a more uh, modern thinker, and he said, "Myths tell us what is desirable. Science tells us what is possible." Both are necessary for us to move forward as a species or as a culture. Um, and and one of the things that we struggle with sometimes is understanding how critical our myths are to setting in, in, in direction, setting in motion the things that we do on a daily basis. This does a wonderful job for that for me, and I really enjoyed it. Here, here. Uh, final thoughts, Ryan? No. I Give me a moment. <laughs> Todd, Greg, one of you give final thoughts. Um mine mine would be what i've already said read it twice thumbs up read it twice tell it, read it twice. learn learn to tell the story tell the story to others and invite them to read it and if they read it great you'll have some wonderful conversation if when, not i've i've already mentioned uh, my wife in this i sometimes i'll tell her pieces of this uh and boy does it get me excited uh you know as i as i'm telling the story i i'm trying to convince her to read it and i'm just thinking oh gosh now i need to go read it uh, yeah, I think you're right. Tell the story. Tell the story. Don't just encourage others to go read it. I really think this entire, everything that I've read in the Silmarillion so far, and 
Admittedly, I was one of those, I'm not going to say was, I have been one of those who sat there and said, I don't want to read the Silmarillion. I don't want to get into a Bible study course of Tolkien's work with you, Craig. I just don't want to do that. He says with his eyes rolled way back in his head. But as I read this, and I appreciate the oral tradition that Todd talked about, this is, it's absolutely, they're stories that are worth telling. And read it and get to take a chance. If you love storytelling, if you have any sort of aspect of you that loves to tell stories, learn a few of these stories and try telling them. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be something that's going to be worth your time, though, because you're going to you're going to just come to love being able to tell a story the way it was told, you know, back with the great myths, the great stories, the yeah. uh, odysseys, you know, be, here, here. be a homer, be, be a homer, <laughs> be ready to tell this to your kids. Don't do the Homer Simpson voice, Todd. I can see you waiting to do it. All right. Oh, no, man. I hate you guys so much. Why? Why? It's better than the Ted Cruz one. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap it up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to finish. Uh, now, this won't be the last of our Silmarillion series. Sorry, Ryan. Uh, you never said I had to come back again. <laughs> But, Todd, you did say you were going to keep reading, and so if I might make a suggestion to you and everybody else, uh, if you would like to read along with us, the next thing that I intend to do will either be The Tale of Turin, uh, which we've mentioned already, dark, 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 very, very, very upsetting, uh, or Akalabeth. This is after Quintus Silmarillion, the... the largest body in the book uh, there's another tale Akalabeth is the story of the second age of of uh, middle earth when aragorn's ancestors the numenorians get their own island as a reward for their help in the uh, the war with morgoth uh, they go to that island they will uh, become the most prosperous people the world has ever seen the most technologically advanced the greatest seafaring folk ever and then they will fall. Atlantis. And great will be their fall. Uh, it is an awesome story. So, uh, read both of those, and we will see you guys when we uh, get ready to talk about those. Keep up with us on Facebook so that you can know what's coming up next, uh, or on our website at thelegendariumpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, guys. We'll talk to you later. The Legendarium Podcast is sponsored by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Follow along with our current series or enjoy some of the classics by visiting thelegendariumpodcast.com where you can sign up for your free trial membership. Click the sponsor link on our website for a free audiobook.